0: Colossians, the book of Colossians. What I want to do is do a short exposition tonight, kind of a high-altitude flyover of something, and then immediately put it into practice. In Colossians chapter 1, if you are a a student of the book of Colossians, which I hope most of you are, it's, it's one of the favorites of most people. You'll know that Colossians begins with one of Paul's most well-known, and certainly one of his most famous prayers. One of the best ways to learn how to pray is to read and study the prayers of the Apostle Paul. Don Carson has a book called Spiritual uh, Renewal, I think it is, where he goes uh, verse by verse and studies all of Paul's prayer, and it is exceptional. You will learn well how to pray. You say, why are we doing this? Well, in our last study of Romans last week, we looked at the fact that one of the things Paul says... Is, is a part of the glue, the elements of relational um, uh, maturity that we have with each other in Romans 12, is that we are to be devoted to prayer. Now, that, that's such a sweet little phrase, and you can almost rush over it without stopping to see that there is a world of instruction in that little phrase, <laughs> devoted to prayer, One of the things that I want us to begin doing, especially on Sunday nights, is spend some time corporately praying for each other and praying for specific things that we can as a body. If we ever, I know we're growing, I know we're expanding the worship center. That's great. That's wonderful. Thank you, Lord, for that growth. But if we ever stop growing in depth at the expense of growing in breadth, I think we're missing the emphasis of New Testament fellowship. But how do we pray for one another? To be devoted in prayer, we learn that prayer is a learned behavior, right? It's something that the disciples said to the Lord, teach us to pray, meaning they didn't know how to do it as well as they wanted, and certainly they didn't know how to do it as well as they had heard the Lord himself address the Father. Well, I want you to look for a moment, we're going to read uh, from verses 3 down to verse 14, and... And I want to cover just some highlights of Paul's prayer as a little bit of a skeleton for how to pray, or at least how to pray better. Paul says, we give thanks, in verse 3, to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. That's That's a pretty intense little phrase, praying always for you. Wouldn't it be great to be able to say that to someone or have someone say that to you and have a degree of sincerity in that? Praying always for you since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as it has in all the world also. It's constantly bearing fruit, increasing. I love that. This fruit is sprouting in their hearts and it's, it's growing, it's increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I think it's fair to say that none of us is quite content with our prayer lives. Is that a fair statement? I've never met anyone who said, I, 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 don't, I don't see any area in my, my communication with God and with my prayers in which I cannot grow, either in um, uh, duration, the length of prayers, or in substance, the content of our prayer. But as we spoke of a minute ago, prayer is something we have to learn. How do we learn how to pray? Jesus gave us a model prayer. It's not a potion. It's not just something to pray as a superstitious way of getting God's blessing. We used to pray that way before football games and wrestling matches. We would say the Lord's Prayer as if God heard us and now said, because you did that, I'm going to help you win. Jesus said, here's a model. Here are kinds of things you can pray. And by seeing watching the disciples rather listen to Jesus pray and saying, we can learn from the Lord himself in his prayer. We too can look at someone who had learned how to interact uh, with uh, the Father through Christ by the power of the Spirit in the Apostle Paul and learn from what and how he prayed. He prayed for these Colossians in specific ways. And my suspicion is, if you were to break down as we're about to, the elements of this prayer, it probably is is not exactly a reflection of the way you and I typically pray one for the other. So I want to break it down real simple into the character of his prayer and the content of his prayer. Let's look first at the character of his prayer. And in order to look at the character of his prayer, we're just going to look very briefly and highlight verses 3 through 8 and look at the content here when we get to verse 9. The character of his prayer included some elements. I want you to notice, first of all, it was linked to thanksgiving, it was linked to thanksgiving. Verse 3, we give thanks to God the Father, the Lord, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, praying for you always. He noticed something going on in the lives of these Colossians that made him thankful and thankful specifically to God. Having the awareness and the insight to see the grace of God in, in our friends and our brothers and sisters and the people in the church is a developed sense it's an ability to see that God's grace is operative and at work in a person's life. It was rooted in thankfulness. He saw what he was thankful for. He knew that they were faithful to the gospel. You can read verses 3 through 8 and see so many elements of their understanding of, application of, and faithfulness to what they believed about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for them. This is, this is convicting to me. Because Paul was interested, deeply, deeply interested, deeply aware in the spiritual realities in the lives of these Colossians. So one of the things that we have to stop and ask ourselves if we're going to increase our our, um, effectiveness and our satisfaction in prayers is do we understand the grace of God and the, the, the challenges or the problems in the people's lives around us because we're so interested, we know how to pray specifically for them. Which leads to number two, it was informed. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, Paul knew what was going on in the lives of these friends at Colossae. He'd heard about it, he was interested in it. He sent word, sent for word to be taught, uh, brought back to him. He had the Colossians on his prayer list. And it sounds like he was receiving regular reports of how his prayers were being answered. You know, I think about if we're seeking the the depth of knowledge about each other, if we're informed about each other's lives well enough that we know if God is indeed answering the prayers that we're praying. It's one thing to pray for someone, it's something else to follow up and see if God has answered it. I, i probably told you 10 times and I'll probably tell you 10 more uh, uh, something that just rocked my world. I had graduated from the Master seminary in 1992, and went back uh, just a couple years ago to a shepherds' conference, and uh, I think it was the last one that my friend, my one of my um, uh, excellent teachers, Dr. Jim Roscup, uh, had attended, and I saw him on the uh, uh, on the the patio and. It's a little embarrassing. He said, Rich. He, I, I, I corrected him and said i go by Rick probably a hundred times, and he still called me Rich. I don't think he liked the, the name Rick particularly, so he just, hey, Rich, how are you doing? And I said, I'm fine. Dr. Roscoff, how are you? And you know, he lost his, his um, wife, Mildred, a few years ago, wrote a book about her and their relationships, just really sweet, and said, how are you doing since loss of Mildred? I'm doing well, grace of God, just uh, amazing uh, response. And then he says to me, Rich. How's your mom? I said, I'm, I'm sorry. He says, Well, I, I I keep praying for your mom. It's typically on Tuesdays, and I cycle through, and you're you're a person I pray for on Tuesday, and and you were saying that your mom was having trouble, and she was trying trying to find a place to live. He was really specific, and uh, you were concerned about her walk with the Lord. How's she doing? I said, Well, you know, she died ten years ago. He says, Well. I'll stop praying that prayer then. (laughs) I was still in his prayer journal. A decade and a half, 20 years plus. I'm still there. He's still praying for me. Third, Paul's prayer was incessant. Wow, this is convicting. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask. We have not ceased to pray for you. Remember the story slash parable of the lady who kept knocking on the door of the judge and knocking and asking and asking and asking and finally he said, okay, finally, out of exasperation. And the point of that, one of the many points of that parable is God is not like that guy and invites us to pray but it also invites our persistence it was incessant. It indicates that Paul's prayer life was normal, regular, constant. He was praying always for them. I think sometimes we can presume on God. We, we feel like we're spiritual. Well, I prayed once, so he heard it. He doesn't need to hear it again. I think God longs to hear the emptying of our hearts because of the concern we have for his, his children. It was constant. And fourthly, this is just still on the, the character. It was, it was personal. Paul was praying for the Colossians, even though, get this, he had never been, at this point, to Colossae. It was likely founded by uh, Epaphras, who was a Colossian himself, and he was praying for them. He longed to come and see. This makes Colossians, Paul's spiritual grandchildren, one step uh, uh, removed from his own personal evangelism, and this is a good place to ask ourselves about the reach of our prayers. It's way too easy to concentrate just on our family, close friends, people we know well. will um, give you an example. Uh, uh, if we're going to pray for uh, our, some of our missionaries, John Glass, Marty Zaid, Massimo Moloka, are we just praying, Lord bless them in Italy and in Switzerland and in St. Louis? Are we just praying that or are we praying in a personal way that we know that Massimo's son, Sandro, has had two surgeries. He had his adenoids removed and and they grew back. I didn't know that adenoids could grow back, but these grew back. And he had a second surgery and has been very sick. Are your prayers informed? When you get those those prayer uh, letters from missionaries, do you read them and pray about them? Or do you kind of glance at them and throw them away? Paul's prayers were personal, and they're personal because he cared. He cared about them even though he didn't know them personally. His reach extended beyond his own experience. Don Carson writes Our prayers may be an index of how small and self centered our world is. Wow. Fifthly, just from the context here, it was specific. This comes on the heels of it being personal. He didn't just say, Lord, we pray for the Colossians. He asked God for specific realities to come to pass in their life. Very specific things. There was significant content in Paul's prayer. It wasn't just God blessed them, God helped them, God um, answered their prayers. It was specifically targeted toward who they were, which brings us to the second big Consideration in Paul's prayer, which I want to spend the the time, the rest of our time on, and that's the content. The content of Paul's prayer. What did he pray? Because what he prayed and how he prayed can inform our own content in praying for one another. These are the specific requests that he prayed. And I find it interesting that Paul let the Colossians know that. He was praying for them, and he let the Colossians know what he was praying for them. That's significant. I have a few people who, who regularly come up to me and say, Pastor Rick, how can I pray for you? And I tell them, and they regularly come back and say, I prayed for this, how did it go? And the fact that I know what they're praying and that they're praying and how they're praying it is not only an aid for me at Heaven's Court, it's super encouraging to me. Now, before we dive in here, I think it's interesting to observe what Paul does not pray for, okay? We just read it a moment ago. What does he not pray for? There's nothing about any specific situations or problems, even though it's okay to pray for specific situations and specific problems. But we don't find that here. Also, there's nothing about any physical issues, and it's okay to pray for physical issues. Look, if I have a physical issue, I hope you pray for me, and I'll certainly pray for you. And I'm sure Paul would pray for them if they were on his mind and on his heart, but those weren't the primary focus of his prayer. Said another way, Paul prayed more for souls than he did for bodies. And I look at my own prayers sometimes, and I wonder if I pray more for bodies than I do souls. So what did he pray for? What's the content of his prayer? Well, first of all, verse 9 tells us he prayed for their thinking. He prayed for their thinking. Parents, you want a great way to pray for your kids from the time they begin uh, uh, saying their first words all the way up Pray for their thinking. Verse 9 says, We've not ceased to pray for you. Praying for you always, we already saw. Now he says, We've not ceased. We've not stopped praying for you and ask that you may be, get this, filled, moved along literally like the wind moves a sail, filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. All of that, you can put equals, thinking. He understood something that we tend to forget, and that is that Christian, Christianity is fundamentally a thinking and rational religion. It involves thinking and knowing for the purpose of being and doing. Look at the three words here. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding. You see those words? These are all mental. These are thinking categories. Word knowledge, epignosis, it means true knowledge. In the New Testament, it's used of intensive religious and moral knowledge, which comes to appropriate faith in Christ, that you 'd know what you need to know. all spiritual wisdom means discernment, simply knowing what to do and why to do it. I two sons off at college and was just praying for them. This very prayer, Lord, give them spiritual wisdom to see with spiritual eyes and know spiritual values and understanding, literally spiritual understanding, thinking biblically or rightly about God, life, people, about tragedy, about disappointment, about anything and everything. This goes back to our old, what do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? We get to what we know. We want our, our, our friends and our, our family, our, our, our spiritual family here at Mission Road. We want them to know and believe what's important so they think properly, so they can control and handle how they feel. Look back at the text for a second. The knowledge of his will. Remember what we studied in Romans 12? Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about God's will, that you would know or prove what God's will is. That's simply knowing what God wants from and in our lives. And it's not a mystery. Too often we 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 look at God's will in terms of should I go here or do that, or God's will is more categorized by, by being and deciding. And living and moral decisions. And Paul asks that God fills them with spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they will do God's will because they know what God wants and expects. I love Psalm 143, verse 10. Teach me to do your will, teach me to do your will. Instead of trying to find it, Paul says, you ought to try to do it. There's no mystery to Paul or to the Colossians what the will of God was. It was simply to do and follow and obey what had been revealed. He prayed, first of all, for their thinking. Are they thinking rightly? Are they thinking biblically? Are they thinking spiritually? Second, this is critical, he prayed for their decisions. For their decisions. Look at verse 10, so that, I want you to have this knowledge, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in, what's the next word? How many respects? All respects, in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. These phrases come together to talk about decision-making. Making good, godly decisions. Paul praises the Colossians will make the right and the best decision in the moment of decision. For their spiritual well-being, are you praying for me, for others, for each other in such a way that you want them to make decisions that bring about the greatest spiritual good in that moment and in that context? He talks about a worthy walk. Boy, what he tells the Philippians the same thing that you will walk worthy. This puts the gospel back in full context. If God the Father gave Jesus the Son with the aid of the Holy Spirit to give us the greatest understanding of who he is, his great love for us, we should walk in a manner worthy of that. And so many people shy away from even thinking in this category because we don't want to be those who believe works salvation, do we? We don't. This is not living in a way so that you're worthy, and God says you made the cut. This is living in a way that you're worthy because God made the cut in Christ. It's a life that pleases God. And it says comprehensively in everything, bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit is the fundamental um, uh, characteristic of a Christian life, it bears spiritual fruit even if even if there's 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 some tiny shriveled up raisin on your vine there's some fruit christians bear fruit thirdly he prayed for their steadfastness i love the old word sticktuitiveness it's the same idea. He prayed that they would stick with it, be steadfast. Verse 11, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all stick to or steadfastness. This word patience is probably not the best way to translate. It's literally endurance. The ability to remain long under a difficulty. That's the idea here. We've seen this concept already in Romans. He prayed that they would be steadfast. This is a prayer that they would stick to their spiritual understanding and their understanding of God's love and will for them, even even in difficulty, that they would have the power of God through the prayers of Paul and others to have steadfastness when life got difficult, when life got tough. You don't need steadfastness if it's easy. You don't need endurance or patience if it's easy. Again, steadfastness is hupomone. We just saw it in Romans last week. To remain under a difficult circumstance. To live there. And this word for patience means a state of emotional quietness in the the face of unfavorable circumstances. Prayer here is for sustenance. Staying with it. Not giving up. Being steadfast. And sometimes, this is hard to say, all right? That's in my notes, so I'm going to say it, okay? I'm just going to read it. Sometimes I wonder if we are trying to pray people out of what God has put them into. That's kind of a tough thing to even say, isn't it? It's okay to say, Lord, deliver someone from a trial, But that's secondary to, Lord, give them steadfastness and hope and patience and faith and faithfulness in the middle of the trial. Because you know exactly what I know. James 1 says that he gives us these trials to increase our maturity and growth, right? And you know what I know about God? Is if you don't pass the test, he is sure to bring you another one. So let's not pray people out of trials until we pray that they are faithful and learn what God is shaping them to be in the midst of those trials. And fourthly, this is kind of the overarching, praying for their worldview or their outlook, verses 11c through 14. It's, Interesting, you put the word joyously in verse 11, put that with verse 12. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, moved us from the kingdom of that darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have salvation and redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's the worldview. Do we understand that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom? That we are, as the old spiritual says, just a passing through. This isn't it. And as bad and as hard as life would get for us, for a Christian here on earth, Paul says, I compare the difficulties of this world. Remember we told the Corinthians, the Colossians, I compare these difficulties with eternity, and it's nothing. It's a worldview. It's a a way we look at life and look at the world and we remember that we are part of the heavenly kingdom. He's transferred us out of this dark world into that inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 14 is interesting. We we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. Do you ever weary? Do you ever grow... um, bored, can I say that, with the simple reality that you've been forgiven of all your sins if you're a Christian, that thought becomes mundane or boring only when we forget that God is God and hell is real. When we forget that God is the eternal judge and hell is an eternal reality. And then our worldview that we've been transferred transferred from that kingdom into his kingdom begins to help us to see that this isn't our world. This isn't my property. This isn't my my, uh, uh, definition of existence. One day, you will close your eyes for the last time. God has determined the last beat of your heart already. Psalm 139, he's already written written your days in a book. He knows, think of this, he knows the day of your death. He knows the day of your home going. We are a part of a kingdom that's just introduced now and upon our death will be introduced in reality. Faith will become what? Sight. That changes how we look at this world. That changes how we think about politics. That changes how we pray about one another. We pray that our worldviews are increasingly sharpened and focused to understand who we are, where we are, and where we'll be. This is asking God and thinking about God in the context of our outlook, our worldview, our understanding, our discernment, our values, our value system, and it's dominated by thankful thoughts of the good news that God has delivered us from hell to heaven, from darkness to light. Just inheritance, saints and light. Rescue, domain of darkness, admittance, kingdom of Jesus, possession of redemption and forgiveness of sins. Does that occupy something you would give thanks for? For people here at Mission Road? I mean, just, here's a good exercise. Just find someone tonight that you haven't maybe prayed for before. And maybe on the way home, just thank God that they have a testimony of faith in Christ. Thank God for saving them we sing, thank you, God, for saving me. Great song. We should do that. Have you ever stopped to thank God for saving the people who are your brothers and sisters? That's a pretty intense prayer. Now, we could spend, as we say so many times, weeks and weeks on any one of these phrases, couldn't we? The question is, how are we praying for one another?